Well, welcome to Grace and Peace Church. My name's Nate, and I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we're going to be continuing on in our journey as we go through the book of James, the letter of James. And we're in chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13. If you want to break out your Bible uh, or pull up the YouVersion app, it's a great way to study along with us. And uh, there's the notes for everything that we're talking about on our website. If you go to graceandpeacechurch.org, and then if you look under the sermons tab, there is a um, kind of like a little notes section, digital bulletin, if you will, for you to track along. And uh, this week we're in chapter two, which starts out talking about favoritism. Uh, our culture is saturated with some sort of favoritism. Um, there's all kinds of examples of it you see in celebrities who commit crimes and get off with minor consequences for what they've done. Um, we see this all the time and it frustrates us, right? Um, wealthy investors who get special privileges when it comes to how they run their businesses um, or even have inside information that then will begin to take and allow them to profit. Uh, we saw it recently with GameStop and everything that took place there. Um, that whole situation, if you want to Google it, search it, um, get into it. But if you know what I'm talking about, there's a lot of people that made a lot of money um, or lost a lot of money doing the same thing that they made a lot of money doing. And um, so favoritism, we see it all over the place. It plays out in our churches, uh, unfortunately. It plays out in our businesses. It plays out in our families even at times. We see the jealousy or even the um, probably well-deserved conversations that exist around people having favorites, taking priority, certain people and families taking priority over others, and uh, it's frustrating. So what do we do about it? Let's look at what James says. It's quite a, a big passage that we're going to look at, so uh, bear with me as we study through. We're going to go verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor person in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the one who is poor, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do not murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those 
who are being, going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James does a beautiful job of giving us some reasoning as well as some tangible illustrations of how favoritism is playing out in the early church. And I'm so glad it doesn't happen anymore. Just kidding. Uh, we still see it take place. It's still something that is ingrained in all of us at some degree. And this topic, I believe, will help us begin to illuminate the areas of our lives where we begin to miss the mark and what it means to love one another and to love those that are unlike ourselves, love those that are different, um, to love in a way that is authentic and genuine. So let's journey through this. Let's begin to take this passage, unpack it a bit, and then we'll look at a few ways to begin to live it out in very tangible ways. So first off, James is writing to a group of early believers. This is the early church. These are the early believers, the first ones to begin to live out this faith. And they're scattered all over the known world at that time. And he's writing this letter to remind them, to encourage them in what it means to live out their faith. And one of the problems, obviously, early on was this idea of favoritism, of treating one person better than another. And so let's look at this. Let's begin to pack it a bit. And these, these early believers, um, they would have struggled with this idea of being in this new kingdom, this new way of living, as well as living in the world that they are currently in with all of its culture, with all of its problems, challenges. And the problem that we face in the Christian life is no different than theirs, is that we have to maintain this two-world perspective. God's kingdom its completely different than the kingdom we live in, the world that we live in. And so we have this, uh, this concept that one pastor said was, we live with our feet on the earth and our eyes on heaven. And it's difficult to live in that tension and maintain it in a healthy way. Maybe you're head nodding and going, yes, that's a challenge at times to begin to keep our eyes on heaven, but yet keep our feet grounded in the world that we are in. That tension is always there. And so one of the areas in which we fail to keep this two-sided perspective is in the way that we look at people. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 16, 17, that while man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And we want to have that same attitude. That's what James is echoing here, is that we want to look at the heart. We don't want to continually be a kind of a community that is looking at the outside perspective. And I know that this, this exists everywhere. It's all over. And uh, one of the ways that I've experienced it in very tangible ways that, that often grieves my heart as I watch it play out. But we do a lot of ministry in Haiti, and I've gone... Uh, multiple times with my brother Tim, who runs True Shepherd Ministries, that grace and peace many of you support financially to help uh, the community, the children, um, through medical support, education, food, water, clothing, shelter. There's so many different ways that that uh, takes place. But I've had the opportunity to go there, and I recognize that when I go there, I receive special treatment that there is a favoritism that exists when our team shows up. 
when we're there to help because we go a few times a year um, to go and invest in the leadership in the community and my experience traveling not only there but other parts of the world is that um, the color of my skin the socioeconomic background that I have the job that I have the country that I'm from um, the family that I've been raised in I recognize that to me it might seem very like very humble beginnings very humble roots not a lot um, but as I travel and see what 90% of the world has, I recognize that I do have a lot. That, again, it has to do with perspective and where we're, we're raised. But, um, but when I go to Haiti, I see that I do have a lot, but then I also see that, they're, that I'm treated differently, that there's a favoritism that takes place there. And the special treatment often, when we go, requires an intentional um, I think recognizing of where hospitality begins and where partiality or uh, bias um, begins to take place. And, and that partiality or that favoritism that starts to take place um, can't be fostered, can't be fostered. It has to be, I think, recognized, pointed out, and pushed against. And so one of the ways that we do that is uh, we believe that we have this, this responsibility to foster um, healthy relationship with people in a way that helps them recognize that we are all part of the body of Christ and that none are more significant than the other. Jesus talks about that. Uh, Paul talks about it, um, that we are all participants in what it means to be the church. We need to talk about church, big C. Um, we're all called to be participants, and no one is elevated to a higher level than another. Jesus is the only one that's elevated higher than anyone else. Jesus is the head of the church. And so reminding these leaders and pastors as we meet with them in Haiti that we're no different, that the resources we have create other challenges, other challenges of pride, uh, selfishness, um, there's all kinds of other stuff that's wrapped up in, in having more possessions. So that doesn't make us better. It doesn't make us deserve anything better, any kind of favoritism or better treatment. And so I just bring that up because I think we have to be aware of the areas in our lives where favoritism exists. And, um, and it's all around us. And so let's continue to unpack this, this word favoritism. The, wor the word that we see here in James in the Greek is technically the word partiality. Um, to where we, in, in the English translation and what we see, um, to unpack that word partiality a little bit more, um, is three words. There's bias, there's discrimination, and there's prejudice that helps us understand that a little more in the English language. Um, first word being bias, a bent, a tendency, an inclination of temperament or outlook especially a personal and sometimes unreasoned judgment. That's a bias. We have it, it exists, we have to uproot that, we have to recognize ways to push against that, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, and then the second thing is there's discrimination, where it's an act or the practice or an instance of discriminating categorically rather than individually. So this would be, in, uh, this would play out in, Examples of age discrimination, where someone's too old and you're like, well, I don't want to hire that person because 
they're older, they're gonna have whatever like preconceived notions of slower, not able to keep up, whatever like preconceived notions you might have, that's a, that's a discrimination. There's a disability discrimination, sexual orientation, status as a parent, even that can sometimes be a discrimination, right? Uh, mothers with children can be a discrimination. Religious discrimination, national origin, being American or being from some location around the globe, sexual harassment, race, color, sex. There's so many ways that discrimination takes place um, and we have to be aware of it. And then the third thing is there's a prejudice. And this is comes from the word pre and judge. So prejudging somebody for who they are, um, preconceived judgment or opinion, an adverse opinion, leaning formed without just grounds or before sufficient knowledge, an irrational attitude of hostility directed against an individual, a group, a race, or a their supposed characteristics. Ever heard the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover? I think our culture understands that, whether you're Christian or not, that to judge a book by its cover, to treat someone based on their outward appearance is missing something. You would think that it would go without saying that we all have a tendency towards partiality. And why do I say that? Because I think it's convenient. I think it's convenient for us to have a bias. It, it makes it easier for us to categorize people, to push people away. It makes it easier for us to not have to engage with any kind of difficult difficult person, difficult situation. It's easy for us to then just keep people at bay, keep people where we want them by keeping them in these categories. We see this playing out in our culture right now. We are hyper-polarized uh, due to social media. Social media does everything it can to categorize people because that's how marketing works. That's how sales works. If you can categorize people and you can peg them against each other, you can create hype, you can create likes, you can create uh, tension that then creates eyes on whatever that is, which in turn starts to make make the whole process work, which then eventually it just what it trickles down to is finances. That the more you can get people engaged or angry at each other, you can create engagement, which creates ad revenue. And, um, and it's sad to watch how social media has made us so divided. Um, and, uh, and all it's done is begin to create a culture where we paint people with a very broad brushstroke. That if someone says one thing, they must be part of an entire camp or an entire belief system and we, we automatically will cancel them, we'll remove them, we'll kick them out of our circle, and we'll say, well, you're part of those people, and I don't associate with those people because they do X, Y, and Z, right? We've seen it play out over and over in, in our culture recently, and, um, and it's sad to see because I believe that what it does is it begins to divide us further and further. Even though, hear this, even though from our experience in our conversations, I know personally conversations that I've had with people that you would categorize in a certain camp, even though their beliefs are nuanced, 
that not everybody believes all the extreme things that maybe they're categorized in. And, and every person has a nuanced understanding or belief system and, and, and approach to life. And to categorize everybody based on one title, whether it's Republican, Democrat, um, churched or unchurched, whatever, like there always, there's always going to be this, this tendency for us to create an us versus them and categorize people in a way that is unproductive. We need to begin to learn down, learn to slow down and prioritize people over productivity. And what I mean by that is that we need to value the heart of people. We need to value individuals over the productivity that we have of getting stuff done, being productive in our own way, having our, our, our own achievements, our own desires, our own things, like all trump all the things that, um, that exist around us in someone else's life. And so we need to slow down, prioritize people, recognize that people are valuable and important, and to categorize them and push them away based on the belief is not healthy. And that's what, what James is calling to, is this idea that you can't treat people differently based on who they are, and or maybe based on a bias that you may have about who they are. James appeals to us on the basis of this law that he he begins to have this this teaching shift towards a conversation about law and why the law is so important. And so what I want to do is take a couple minutes is begin to see the value of this law that he talks about. And he does this using the royal law. And this is a, this is a term that's unique to him. And he says in uh, verses 8 and 9, he says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And he goes on to describe how the law is there to bring freedom. When he talks about law, he's talking about what you see in Torah. And that's the first five books of the Old Testament. <clears throat> and the law of Christ, this royal law that he talks about, is this idea of distilling all of those laws down to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And when he talks about this idea of love your neighbor as yourself, he says, in doing that, you are going to do good. You're going to ultimately experience what the good life is. And law, according to James and according to what you see throughout scripture, is sometimes misunderstood. Law was meant to do a couple things. And the first thing, it was meant to set us apart in meaningful relationship between us and other people and us and God to have meaningful relationship. Meaningful relationship recognizes the heart of somebody and doesn't look at the outward appearance, looks at what matters most. So again, law was meant to give us, a, give us parameters to begin to foster healthy relationship. And then the second part of it was meant to point us to Christ because we recognize that we're going to fall short as we're trying to live into these laws. And we're going to fall short when it comes to favoritism, when it comes to bias. It's going to happen. 
But what we begin to see is that we need the Holy Spirit, that we need the grace of God working through us to begin to remove that bias, to remove those ways that we look at outward appearance and not the heart. And any good that you see in me or any other Christians uh, in your life, is a, any good that you see is a direct result of God's grace and God's Holy Spirit working to transform their lives. Because by my own choice, I don't think that I would be sitting here. I think that if I, if I was left to my selfish ways, I would continually be out doing the self-destructive things. But what the Holy Spirit does is it begins to renew our heart. That then we have this passion to then get to know someone's heart over our selfish motives. That when we begin to have this pure heart that begins to love mercy, that begins to prioritize others over ourselves, it begins to transform the world. And that's why he says that just, you have to look at this royal law of love your neighbor as yourself. And so then he goes on and he talks about law bringing freedom. And we spoke about this last week if you want to get into that. So I don't want to spend too much time there. But when relationships thrive, we experience freedom. When your relationships thrive as a result of being gracious, being a listening person in those relationships, when it comes to our marriage, or when it comes to coworkers, or when it comes to a stranger and a difficulty or a challenge that comes up in a, in a conversation, that when we have a healthy way of approaching relationships, we will experience freedom. We'll experience a way of living in a way that um, that allows us to thrive in these interactions. And that's what the law was meant to do. That when he says, don't cover your neighbor's stuff, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. Like all these things begin to like shape how we have relationship with others. And then we thrive and we experience the freedom that he talks about. The law that gives freedom. The ways of living that begin to allow us to thrive. Stanley Hauerwas in Resident Aliens is a great theologian, great thinker when it comes to our faith, says this, our biblical story demands an offense, so proactive, rather than defensive posture of the church. The world and all its resources, anguish, gifts, and groaning is God's world, and God demands what he has created. Jesus Christ is a supreme act of divine intrusion into the world's settled arrangements. It's him dropping right in the midst of this and it says, In Christ, God refuses to stay in his place. The message that sustains the church is not for itself, but for this world. Jesus refuses to stay in his place. He refuses to sit back and allow things to be as they are. He moves into it. He has this proactive, this offensive approach rather than a defensive approach. And what Stanley Hauerwas brings in this, this chapter in Resident Aliens, which I would highly recommend reading, um, if you're burnt out on the church and tired of what you've seen in Christianity, um, it's an older book, but it's so, so on point when it comes to our faith and living it out. But what he says is this, we're called to be proactive. We're called to move forward in our faith when it comes to these relationships and these ways that we're called to live. So again, going back to earlier, what I said is like we have our eyes on the kingdom and our feet 
planted here on earth. So we have to live in both worlds. We have to bring, as Jesus said, God's kingdom here on earth. That we get to live this out in very proactive ways. And, and what Jesus modeled for us is that he didn't stay in his place. He moved forward. He moved forward and said, I want to bring this beautiful message. And I want to be proactive when it comes to being countercultural. When it comes to how we treat one another. When it comes to how we view people. Um, that we begin to remove this bias. We remove this, um, this special attention that we show to certain people and not others that we begin to have this beautiful way of interacting that's void of discrimination. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. How do we bring honor to God? Our heart is to bring honor to God because God has created us in a way that is good, and as we begin to discover that, we see how life-giving it is. So how do we bring honor to God? Let's talk about some action steps. In the very end, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. The judgment has to be removed. We have to bring in mercy. And what I would say is, if you want to write this down, I'd say, enter into every conversation and relationship with more questions than answers. If we enter into any kind of relationship with more questions to begin to understand, to learn about people and to where they're coming from, the struggles that they have, the passions that they have, the things that they're curious about, we will begin to engage in conversation in a beautiful, productive way. And I think that that will shape our relationships. It'll shape our relationships with our children, with our spouses, with the people that are all around us that we constantly either have conflict with or that we avoid because we feel like there will be conflict. Let's enter into conversations, asking questions. And the next thing I would say is who in your life needs mercy? Who in your life needs mercy, needs extra time, money, resources, energy, mental headspace, um, who in your life requires that mercy and how can you begin to invest into their lives? One of the ways that we see this tangibly lived out is in, in our community here in Oceanside, there is a pool called the Brook Street Pool. And many of you have grown up learning how to swim there. Um, I've been to many water polo practices there, uh, watching students when I was doing youth ministry, uh, have their swim meets there and uh, just been a it's an amazing aquatic center but it's in the middle of a under-resourced community and what Oceanside wants to do currently is they wanted to would then take the financial funding from Brook Street and move it to a more um, updated swim center that they're building that's almost done that'll be done this summer um, but shutting down the Brook Street pool in order to fund this other pool that's at El Corazon. And so this idea of taking from an under-resourced area to put it into a resourced area just doesn't make sense. Um, that these under-resourced areas need that. 
And so to, to take from that in order to have more where there is more doesn't make sense. And I think it's a great illustration because we need to be invested in our community. We need to speak out on that. You need to sign the petition that says we don't want to take from the Brook Street Pool, which I invite you to check out. Um, you can Google it and look it up. But, um, but that, that idea of, of constantly taking from the under-resourced because there isn't enough resources there to then resource uh, areas that are already thriving, uh, it doesn't make sense. And again, it's, it's that bias. It's that favoritism towards those who have that begin to recognize um, just the, the injustice of taking from there in order to, to have even more. And, and the, I think we need to recognize that at times we need to keep resourcing going to the areas where, um, where you may not see that, that need directly in your own backyard. That you need to invest in areas, in areas that, um, that may not get the attention if, uh, I guess for selfish reasons, you're not going to get it in return. And, and I think what James does here is opens our eyes to the areas in our community or in our own lives where we've had bias and we've said, I want to use funding for my own resources rather than for somebody else who might have need. There is subtle implicit bias in our daily life continually taking place. Um, I would say that we need to be aware of that. We need to be so nuanced in recognizing the areas of our lives where maybe we spend time with people who are just like us because they don't demand much time from us. They don't demand money from us. They look like us. They talk like us. It makes things really easy for you. But I would be challenged, and I'm challenged in my own life, to be stretched in areas where <clears throat> spend time with people and around people and invest in people that don't just look like me and not because I have and I want to give to those who have not but because I recognize that if I continually surround myself with people just like me I will never be investing in, in, in representing God's heart for the people that God's heart is for those who have not who are the outcast who, according to culture, would say are not worthy of whatever it is. But remember, God looks at the heart, not at the outward appearance. And we are called to do the same thing. Christ modeled this continually, that he goes and he enters into the world that others live into. He goes and is with those that are outcast. And so may we be listeners, may we be people who eat with people, uh, who don't look like uh, look like us, act like us, talk like us, um, and uh, Jesus was criticized for this over and over for being with so-called tax collectors and sinners. Um, I would encourage us to recognize those subtle bias, but then also take proactive steps by creating routine in our lives um, within our neighborhood that we live in. Um, I would encourage you uh, to shop at the same place consistently so that you get to know that community that you live in, um, that you frequent the same grocery store, that you frequent the same coffee shops, the same businesses on a regular basis for the sake of knowing your community, knowing the people around you. And I believe that what God has done in your heart will then begin to overflow into the world that you live in. And so I see many of you in Grace and Peace modeling this. 
uh, but may we continue to press into that. May we never get comfortable in where we are with our walk with God, that we continually press into the areas that God calls us to and continue to represent God's kingdom as we keep our eyes on the kingdom here where we are planted. So grace and peace to you as you live into this and go and be the grace that God pours out of us towards others so they may experience that peace as well. Grace and peace to you. Rejoice in knowing that we never walk alone. Know the grace and peace of Christ walking beside us, guiding and protecting us. Share this comfort with one another and feel his presence each moment of each day. Amen.